Thank you for listening to Contemporary Perspectives on Black Homeschooling. This podcast is presented by Black Family Homeschool Educators and Scholars. You can learn more about our work at blackfamilyhomeschooling.org. This episode was hosted by Dr. Cheryl Field-Smith and features Paula Penn-Nabert, author of the book, Morning by Morning, How I Homeschooled My African-American Sons to the Ivy League. Thank you for listening. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to have Doc. I mean, Doc, I'm calling you Doctor. I'm, I'm giving you a doctor's degree. No, no. <laughs> um, Paula Penn Nambert, the author of this book, Morning by Morning, which has really informed and influenced many home educators probably around the world. And I want to say also scholars' work such as mine for decades. Um, so great to have you here. It is an honor. We are um, really beholden to your book, which was authored back in 2003, but is still a mainstay in the literature on Black homeschooling. So I'm honored to have you and have this time with you. But for those who might not have read your book yet, um, <laughs> I want to step into the past and talk a little bit about um, you know, how did you approach your homeschooling when you did it? You homeschooled three African-American males into yeah. excellent school um, schools of higher institutions, by the way, right? Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about how did you do it? Who did it? Was it you? You know, who, who did it? How did you do it? Well, first of all, thank you so much uh, for, for having me. This is this is really exciting, um, especially because my my spawner old and crusty. So it's it's been a minute. <laughs> it's been a minute. My quote unquote my baby. I have to stop yeah. saying this, but my my youngest is thirty nine years old. Okay. So I'm sort of the retrospective of this is is an interesting thing for me, especially right now in the midst of the pandemic when there are so many new families really considering homeschooling for the first time. And so to that extent, I really sort of relate to the unexpected nature of it because we were not, we were not one of those sort of really intentional families that knew, like I am always impressed when I meet young black parents now and they say, oh, we knew at conception we would homeschool. And I'm like, wow, y'all better than me. We did not know. Okay. We did not know. Damon and Charles and Evans started off in regular. They went to um, a very sort of experimental um, preschool, um, Jacksonville. Uh, no, they went to, it was a farm school, Mandarin Farm School. We lived in Jacksonville, Florida then. Um, they did that for kindergarten. And then they went to a traditional school for first grade and then they went to an independent day school um, both in Jacksonville and in Columbus but in each school even though they were in different geographic areas of the country so Florida and and Ohio 
And even though they were different sort of pedagogies, so one was an experimental school, one was a traditional public school, one was what I would call a true independent day school. In other words, not a charter school, not a church affiliated school, just a, an actual independent day school. Mm -hmm. But even though these were different institutions in different places, the challenges that we experienced were disturbingly consistent, mm. right? Mm. And they all centered around what I grew to recognize was the manifestation of systems of white supremacy that were so embedded in the pedagogy that it was invisible to the participants. In other words, our children were never in any place where adults were like, oh, I hate these niggers, or oh, could you iron my clan robe for dinner tonight? It was nothing like that. It was, it was all of the subtle, insidious things that when you then address it, the response is always, how could you say such a thing? Right. And I was always fascinated by the Again, the consistency of centering oneself, mm -hmm. centering the white gaze. So when I come to you and say, this thing that you did to my very young child, let's talk about this. Mm -hmm. And your response is, how do you think this makes me feel? Centering yourself, consistently centering the self. Right. So ultimately, our children were expelled from school um, because I thought it would be a great idea to have a back to school picnic for all the black families. Because one of the things that happens in independent day schools is, and I knew this because I'm a, a graduate of a very wonderful independent day school for girls, very elite, very exclusive, very expensive. It used to be very, very white. Um, mm. It's now just very white, but it used to be very, very, very white. I was, <laughs> I was the only black student in my class the whole four years that I was there. Um, and part of what I remember so vividly entering there in 1968 was not just a, how hard it was to tell white people apart, because they really look very similar. And that was very disturbing to me. I was like, didn't I just see, see you 30 seconds? I mean, okay. And everybody's named Betsy and Sally. And I, I couldn't get that. That was very confusing to me. Um, but the other thing that was interesting was the community that I came from, everybody knew everybody and everybody's parents and cousins and grandparents. I didn't realize that that was because I was accustomed to that. Mm -hmm. Like I'm fourth generation in church. So I'm used to that. What I realized when I went to independent day school was that all of those kids were also in those kind of insular environments. Mm -hmm. So everybody there knew everybody else, everybody's parents and cousins and grandparents. And that made being black even more difficult because you didn't have those sort of secondary connections and relationships. Right. Right. So I thought, you know, it would be great is to have a back to school picnic so all the black families could meet each other. So we're not all in the same country club, right? <laughs> um, 
So I thought it was a great idea, but the school did not. And apparently some of the black parents did not because the school, it wasn't like it was a secret. Um, I didn't invite anybody in the administration as I explained to the head of school because none of you are black. If there were any black administrators or faculty, I would have invited them, but you don't have any. That's why you didn't get invited. What a secret. But several black families complained. And so the head of school called me in and said, you know, this was, this was very racist. And a lot of black families felt insulted. I said, maybe they felt, so did they think that you did, that everybody didn't know they were black? Maybe they were going incognito. <laughs> but, you know, everybody already knew they were black before I sent that invitation, A. And B, all summer when you went to various cocktail parties at the various country clubs in Columbus, and there were no black people. Did you think this is so racist? No, you did not. Mm-hmm. So again, centering yourself, this made you feel uncomfortable, but you've never thought about other people exercising their autonomy. I didn't ask you because it's none of your business. Right. My social life is not, it wasn't on school property. Mm-hmm. So, um, but our tuition was late which was always paid in when we were self-employed, we get money when, when we get it. And then when we get it, we pay you, which had never been a problem. But after that picnic conversation, two days later, we got a call. If the tuition is not current by Friday, do not send the boys back. And if you do, and this is a quote, we will embarrass them. Okay. It's going to be like that. Wow. Okay. Okay. I see. I see. So I called because again, I'm from Columbus and I went to the girls equivalent of the same independent day school. Mm -hmm. So I knew all the people on the board. Mm -hmm. I called each and every one of them and sent them a letter. Just FYI, this is what happened. And people were like, what, what? Mm -hmm. So then two weeks later, the head of school calls and says, we were all upset. We said some things we didn't mean. I said, no. Now, I was upset. Everything I said, I meant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're out. We're done. Drop the mic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And thank you. Thank you for making it plain. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you. Thank you for making it plain. So that was why we started homeschooling. And I always feel like I have to confess that it wasn't like we decided to homeschool. Mm-hmm. We decided to homeschool, but because we did have the option, obviously, of re-enrolling the boys in public school. Mm-hmm. But by then, we had just thought, you know what? We have been doing the school thing for a minute, and it's the same thing every place we go. Mm-hmm. So, and how, as my husband said, how much time do we spend educating our children's teachers? Mm. Right? I mean, because when the boys were still at this independent day school, we got a note to come in because Damon and Charles allegedly have been lying in class. And the teacher said, I'm very concerned about their sense of self. That's obviously the reason they lied. We get to school and she said, I, I'm just going to show you what, what happened. So the class was to do a, um, a family tree. And you were supposed to put as much information as you knew about your family as far back as you knew it with as much detail as you had. And she said, I just want to show you what Damon and Charles did. So you'll understand my concern, our concern. 
So Damon and Charles have these trees that showed us their parents and their aunts and uncles and their grandparents, both sets, and their great grandparents and their great, great grandparents. And there was college, 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 law school, medical school, Supreme Court arguments. Because my husband's uncle, one of my husband's uncles, James Neighbor, argued Brown be Board of Education with Thurgood Marshall before he was dean of the law school at Howard and president of Howard. Okay. His other uncle, Sam, was the first Black person to get a PhD from Brown in 1932 in marine biology. But again, Charles and I both come from families that have been in this country since the late 1700s. -hmm. So both of us are from families that have been in lifelong marriages Mm -hmm. and pursuing post-secondary education for as long as it's been legal for Black people to do so. So all of that was on this tree. And this woman says, clearly they're lying. Clearly they're lying. My husband said, do you, do you actually have a college degree? Are you, are you telling me that you have had no awareness of the fact that Black people in this country have been pursuing post-secondary education since the 1800s? Are you telling me that you actually don't know that? Before we even get to the issue of you defaming my children, by calling them liars. Right, right. Before we even get to that, are you telling me that you are so ignorant and unread and unlettered that you don't know this? Mm -hmm. So then of course it was, (laughs) cue the tears. Right, white fragility. Cue the tears. How do you think this makes me feel? He said, why do you think that I care? Mm. I have no... This is one of those occasions when I didn't want to, but I had to say, honey, that's enough. Yeah, yeah. Was like, I care nothing about your feelings. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I'm here to discuss is the health and well-being of my sons. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. But those kinds, and then you, it always ends, it starts with how you think this makes me feel and then concludes with we all learned something. And that's what we're here for. No, he said, I'm not paying this much money to teach you. Right. Okay. Right. So, as he said to me, you know, we didn't plan to homeschool, but he said, I am tired of teaching white people how to engage black children without destroying them. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm tired of that. And I'm tired of their colored collaborators. I'm, I'm tired of the whole, the whole, because the colored collaborators are, are, are worse. Oh my gosh. Wait, what do you mean by color collaborators? What I mean is, you know, people who become more Philistine than the Philistines, they're, they're, (laughs) they're so vested in this status quo. They are so vested in this status quo. Mm -hmm. Even those people who make a living critiquing it, Mm -hmm. but they don't want it to be better or different. Mm -hmm. Right. Because like that's their shtick. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if everybody got if everybody got better, what would you be doing, right? <laughs> right. Well, right? You're not. You're critiquing 
systems of white supremacy, but you're not really attempting to dismantle it because that's your thing. Oh, yeah. Right. So you need that to be present. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. It's like women who talk about patriarchy, but they endorse and support patriarchy, patriarchal ideologies and behaviors. So when you hear this isn't as common as it was when I was a young woman. I mean, I'm going to be 67 on my next birthday. So, you know, I've seen this, I've seen some, some change, but when I was a young woman coming out of law school, it was not uncommon to hear women say things like, you know, I can't work for a woman. You know how women are mm -hmm. like, I don't know. All my friends have always been guys. I don't know. Maybe hair flip, hair flip. Maybe other women were jealous of me. Mm -hmm. And you know that that is a manifestation of internalized oppression of course yeah. because you can work it backwards like a math problem mm -hmm. i've never heard a man say i can't work for a man mm -hmm. they might say i can't work for that man right but they don't make it a group thing they never i've never heard a man say i can't work for a man you know how men are all my best friends have been women maybe other dudes were jealous of me mm -hmm. never i've never ne men don't make it because men think they're okay Right, right. They see somebody who's not. That's an outlier. Right. They're not right. buying into this group thing. Yeah, right? yeah. And just like women do that, a lot of black people do that. So, my grand, my paternal grandfather was the one who introduced the term "colored collaborator" to mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. when I was really too little to know what he. All I really knew about my paternal grandfather was that he was super cranky. Um. Yes. And but he was one who would always say things like, "Yeah, you think you do you know where you live? Do you know what country this is? Do you know your history? Because if this were Greece, we are not in Athens. This is Sparta. Mm -hmm. And these people you think are your friends, these are the descendants of people who would sell your child to cover a bad gambling debt right. on their way to church right. and dare you to cry about it. That's right. Now." You know, my paternal grandfather, the first David Washington Penn, was born in 1891 in Roanoke, Virginia. And he lived until my first year in college oh. in 1972. So it's not that it's a huge number of years, but in terms of culturally and socially what happened. And so his thing about colored collaborators, uh, people who talk about problems, but they are participating in the continuation of those things. Right. Instead of doing They're so. the ones who say, Massa, you should know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is what they, they're the ones who say yeah. things like, you know, we just not ready. Right. Right. And they're the ones who say, you know. those, so the people, the, the black parents that were at the picnic and complained those right. are, those are color collaborators those are color collaborators yeah or the ones mm -hmm. more likely the ones who were invited did not and were insulted to be asked mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. it's like when you go to um like alumni functions of of ivy league or seven sister schools mm -hmm. or if you go to i mean if you've ever gone to the opera or you've gone to the symphony You've probably, or you've gone to an opening at an art museum. Mm -hmm. You've seen this where there, you'll walk in and there might, or you go to an academic. Now I definitely see this academic conferences all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cause there's, 
in terms of a hotbed of color collaborators, you can't beat the Academy. <laughs> you cannot, you cannot beat the Academy for color Shade collaborators. <laughs> Yes. I, yes. I mean, not you, yeah, but, you, yeah. but you know what I'm talking about. I do. I do. You know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I'll go to a conference. I do a fair amount of, of writing on international business ethics. Mm-hmm. So, and I could, but I will not name names, mm-hmm. uh, but I've been at a number of business ethics conferences here and abroad in Paris University of Siena in Italy, mm-hmm. at Oxford. Mm-hmm. And you walk in and there's like hundreds of people and maybe there's two or three, five other Black people. Because mm-hmm. philosophy is not, is not really the, the go-to discipline for Black right. people. Okay. Right. So, you know, you see another Black person, like, hey! and they look at you like, don't come over here. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, these people already know you're Black. It's not like if I stand next to you, people are going to be like, oh my God, now that I see them standing next to Paula, I realize... They're black too. <laughs> mm-hmm. They already know. Mm-hmm. Right. They already know. They know. Um, so these these are the people who go, as my husband would say, incognito. Right. 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 So those those are colored collaborators. And yeah. when we decided that we were not going to send the boys back to not just to that school, we weren't sending them to school at all. Mm-hmm. And so that was 1991. Okay. And a number of middle-class Black people, unsolicited, felt the need to come and tell me, this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And what are you trying to prove? And what is your point? Mm -hmm. And who do you think you are? And you and Charles are opting out of something that the rest of us are trying to get into. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and how does that have... Like, I'm not advocating this to be a a movement. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, as my first book was entitled, As For Me and My House. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't give a rat's patootie what you want to do with yours, really. I mean, I hope everything works out for y'all, but Mm -hmm. like, this is me and that's you. (laughs) Right. We're not, we're not doing any cooperatives. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time that we were homeschooling, we intentionally had, Charles had a mission statement mm-hmm. and a five-year plan mm-hmm. and a 10-year plan and a 15-year oh. plan. But Charles was the kind of weirdo that had um, off-site 360s for us as a family. Okay. 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 So there's no accidents here. Right, right. Things may not go the way you want it, but it's not because there wasn't a plan. There was always a plan. Mm -hmm. And so the plan was to create a parallel universe. So his position was, if you create, if we can create a space in which our children are validated and nurtured holistically, spiritually, physically, and intellectually, academic achievement will happen as a foregone conclusion. Because it's in the nature of humans to seek knowledge. That's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just what people, when a child stops asking questions, mm-hmm. that's not a reflection of anything other than some disconnect in the external environment. It is not intrinsic to the child. Mm-hmm. So this need to re-engineer. And that was what, because as he said, if we compared 
And I think a lot of people look at education and the conspiracy theories are so enticing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, the conspiracy that white people play into, which is the problem is dysfunctional black families, mm-hmm. you know, and where's the daddy? Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the problem, mm-hmm. you know, and, and black people not seeing anybody work and, and, you know, just dysfunction in the black community. That's, that's the problem. Black people not serious about education. Right. And then the, cons- the corresponding conspiracy on the part of a lot of black people is this conspiracy to destroy black children. Right. Mm-hmm. Like teachers get up in the morning and say, oh, don't forget, I'm going to make a note to myself. If I see any black kids, I need to just destroy them. Don't forget. Right. Right. And inside, I think, and those are both enticing and they have a lot of emotional energy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but part of what Charles and I thought about was if we compared education to a manufacturing process, and, and that's how, because we have manufacturing clients, mm-hmm. the idea of continuous process improvement is something that is um, inescapable if you are in a competitive manufacturing industry. Mm-hmm. And when there is a, dis- a disconnection, when there is a problem, you go backward and you look at where you unravel it to see where is, where is the dysfunction happening? He said, so if you were manufacturing cars and all the blue cars were missing a fourth wheel, you would not say a blue cars aren't serious about transportation. Right. And you also wouldn't say the people on the assembly line are undermining the blue cars. Right. There's clearly, there's clearly a design flaw. There's an engineering flaw. We have to just find it and fix it. Mm -hmm. So part of what we decided was the fix for us was to create this parallel universe where our children would be taught exclusively by adult versions of themselves. So most of the faculty that we hired black folks, Mm -hmm. um, of the nine tutors that we hired, seven were men. So two black women, seven black men over the course of this this time. And we hired them not from the College of Education. We hired PhD students and candidates from the specific disciplines because we decided that anyone who was getting a PhD in education had already been indoctrinated into systems of white supremacy in the pedagogy. I get that. And we're not, maybe not even consciously aware of it. Mm -hmm. Right, not even consciously aware of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was evidenced by the number of black people would say things like, your kids are so exceptional. Are they? Mm. Are they really? Because I don't, I mean, I I love them. Don't get me wrong. I I love them to death. Um, But I have to agree. Charles C. Madison felt very strongly that he said, I could pick three black children in at random off of any street corner in the world, put them in the same environment and Mm -hmm. get the same results. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. The same results because it's very much like what he had said to me about gardening. And I told you, Charles introduced me to organic gardening. Mm -hmm. When our, I had the twins while I was in law school. So when I graduated, they were 13 months old. And I had nursed them for the first year and was starting to buy baby food. 
And C. Madison said, sweetie pie, we don't know um, who's growing that <laughs> or bottling it. We have to grow our own food. And I said, you are such a freak. I mean, who do you think? Yes. I just got law. I just, <laughs> I just finished law school. I don't. And he looked at me very calmly um, and said, you know, gardening is like parenting and pastoring. They all require the same daily attention to detail in the same posture of humility, head bowed, body bent. Mm-hmm. People who don't have time to garden, you probably don't have time to parent. I said, okay, paradigm shift. So we always have had, we always have had a garden. Um, but Charles was different. Cheryl, now, you know, Charles whizzed through Dartmouth in three years and graduated with honors and a box of varsity letters. Okay. He was, he was all of that and a great big bag of barbecue potatoes. Okay. <laughs> he was all that. Yeah. Um, and very calm. Like he did not believe in spanking children. Okay. We were married for 36 years, eight months, and 22 days. I never heard him utter a word of profanity ever. He was just like Spock. Yeah. Always under control. Mm-hmm. Always under control. So the idea of this is how we feed ourselves, mm-hmm. um, this idea of autonomy was a big issue with Charles right mm-hmm. um so us being self-employed that was charles's idea yeah. us having some control over at least 50 percent of our food consumed that was charles's idea mm-hmm. and so the way in which our homeschooling process was structured that was charles's idea his position was we have three black male children that will eventually be adult men mm-hmm. And the way in which they are educated holistically will shape the way they will be in the world as men. Mm-hmm. And so this whole idea of people critiquing Black men for being distant, aloof, violent, disengaged, and no one wants to talk about how we parent Black male children. He said, so when we talk about violence, particularly violence against women, he was like, you know, we need to address the fact that every perpetrator that we see, incarcerated or otherwise, mm-hmm. was conceived and nurtured in the body of a woman. Mm-hmm. And their formative years, by and large, will be shaped by the care or lack thereof of women. Okay. So most children's first experience with physical violence happens at the hands of their mothers, their aunties, or their grandmothers. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's not going to happen here. There'll be no hitting. I was like, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? I didn't say that's why you have kids. So you have somebody to hit. I didn't say that, but I did, I did go right to spare the rods while the child. Yeah. And it's hard to, um, to raise children differently than the way you yourself were raised. Very hard. That's something that's really hard to overcome. Yes. I think it takes a different, it takes, it takes some imagination. Mm -hmm. And again, one of Charles's gifts was the ability to imagine things he had not seen. Mm -hmm. Both of us come from very traditional 
black families where spanking is how you live right right, right? and when you're not being spanked there's the threat of being spanked <laughs> yes there's there's the verbal like i'll snatch a knot in your neck yes. that all of that yes <laughs> okay all all of that he was like we're not going to have any of that mm-hmm. there's not going to be any of that it's not just that there's not going to be any hitting there's not going to be any yelling there's not going to be any name calling there's not going to be any belittling that none of that wow none of that so when i said spare the rods for the child he said let's go back to the 23rd Psalm. Now I should have known better because Charles's father and grandfather were both Baptist ministers. I don't know why I was, but you know, people in holiness, we always think we the only right. ones in the Bible. <laughs> grab onto one verse. <laughs> With nobody else, ain't nobody else saved. Okay? Nobody else is saved, right? Um, so he, you know, it's like you're Baptist. Okay, you're not saved. Right. Um, he said, you know, let's go to the 23rd Psalm. And it says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff are used against predators, not against the flock. The job of the shepherd is to be so deeply entrenched in the sheepfold. My sheep know my voice. Doesn't say my sheep know the back of my hand. Doesn't say the sheep know my belt. The sheep know my voice. Yeah, the sheep know my voice. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, again. Yeah, yeah. Paradigm shift. Yeah. Right. So our children were not spanked. Okay. Um, a couple of times when he was gone, I. But. Because <laughs> a couple of times I was like, you know what? One somebody got to be hit. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, but so this whole idea of what kind of us making a space for excellence Mm -hmm. and making a space for excellence, you it's harder to get to excellence in the midst of fear. Mm. Right. And when you are hitting children, um, once you've hit someone, you've you've ripped the time space continuum. Mm. Right. Mm. You you can apologize. You can say, I'm sorry but you've engaged in an act of violence as a means of control. Mm-hmm. And his position was that is not the space. And when people say, well, you know, my parents spanked me and I, and I turned out fine. And he's like, the fact that you think you're okay. <laughs> right. right. You think you're okay. And quite frankly, being okay might be enough for you. Mm-hmm. Charles really did not mind telling people, okay, maybe enough for you. I expect more from my sons. Yeah. Okay is not enough. I expect excellence. And so mm-hmm. the people that we hired, we hired from outside of the College of Education. Mm-hmm. So for biology, we went to College of Biology. We mm-hmm. got biologists. Mm-hmm. And that's how we ended up having fetal pig dissections on our kitchen table. <laughs> It was very upsetting. Sure. You have stock in Clorox. Okay. Because <laughs> I was going through bottles of bleach like it was, and this was before everybody knew about green clean. I was right. straight Clorox, not diluted. <laughs> right. Straight, straight Clorox, the walls, the chairs, because animals have been cut up in here. Okay. Good. And we can't cook nothing until everything in here has been bleached down. 
That's okay. right. That's um, so we did that for math. We hired PhD candidates in the College of Mathematics mm-hmm. and ditto for French. Wow. We also ended up with at least half of the folks that we hired were African students, some from Ghana, um, from some, uh, one from uh, Namibia, but two from Ghana. And those, that was an unexpected benefit because by having graduate students who were international, mm-hmm. our children were exposed to a whole different perspective about education. Yeah. I remember the first tutor that we hired from the math department, Dr. Mulango already had his PhD and thanks to racism, hadn't yet found a job. So he was available. Mm -hmm. And after the first month, I said, you know, I just think that, I think the expectations you have of the children are unreasonable. You know, maybe you've forgotten Damon and Charles are 11 and Evan is nine. And I, I think the amount of homework that you're assigning is and he's, he looked at me with utter disgust. You Americans are so weak. These children have nothing to do but sit at the kitchen table and do problem sets. <laughs> They're not walking to get water. Ooh, they, yeah. oh, and then you wonder why your children are not competitive in college. It's a, really yeah, good, point. It's a good point. He, he was like, he was utterly disgusted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was utterly disgusted. So there was, that was, that was. That's another paradigm a, shift. The way we see life in America, right? We yeah. have leisure time. And, you know, around the world, there's some places, there's no such thing as leisure time. No or not, time as much, leisure time. not as and, much. Yeah. And he, each of the tutors that we hired brought a level of seriousness mm-hmm not just to the discipline, but also particularly with the international students, the level of engagement that they had with our children was unlike anything I had ever seen and anything I had ever experienced myself as a child in school. I had never had when the the first year, so Charles had the boys take the SAT the first time when they were 13. Okay. Because his position was one of the reasons why a lot of kids don't test well is we wait until when it counts and there's all this anxiety. But if you're taking it when you're 12 or 13, it doesn't count. You're just, by the time you actually need that score, you've done it so many times, it's no biggie. That's right. Plus you get all the data back that shows you where you did well, what you need to improve upon. So then at the end, we had already budgeted to hire an SAT tutor, right? Oh, you're dropping all these wisdom wisdom bombs. Oh my goodness, this is great. Yeah, well, the SAT tutors and the number of people who have told me, grind it, ain't nobody got money for that. The devil is a liar, okay? The devil is a liar. Get thee behind me, Satan. Do not... Now, granted, SAT tutors are not cheap. Mm-hmm. When we hired the SAT tutor, and I said, Damon and Charles are 41 now. So this was a minute ago. Right, right. We paid, I think, $1,500. Okay. okay, $1,500 in 1998. That was a lot of money, mm-hmm. okay, 1997. Mm-hmm. Right. But 
the thing that I kept thinking about when people would say, I don't have money for that. I don't have money for this. As Charles, I hate to keep quoting Charles, but it's Charles used to say, it's not a question of how much money you make. It's how much money you spend and what you spend it on. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I told you that um, I've worn my hair natural since 1976 and until about... um, 1985 I had it I wore it like cut to about half an inch (laughs) Charles put everybody's hair his hair my hair and the kids hair (laughs) there was not a there was not a farthing a yen a sue a drachma spent on hair (laughs) have a seat have a seat Right. I do my own nails. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We yeah. did not eat out. Mm-hmm. We had a garden. Mm-hmm. Now, and I'm a great cook, not, <laughs> not to be conceited, but I am really <laughs> serious. I'm a, and the funny thing is I never cooked before I got married. Okay. Oh, wow. I never cooked before I got married, but I'm a great cook. And I, when I say cook, I mean like I bake bread, cakes, pies. I make, I have my own pasta machine. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, it's amazing what people spend eating out. Yeah. And especially if you're feeding oh, two, here. four or five people. <laughs> you Now, and if you have a garden, so I had a garden. We always had a garden. 50%, at least of the, certainly of the vegetables that we ate, we, you want greens tonight? I'm going out to, I got collards, kale, mustard. Yeah. Right. You want, you want sugar snap peas? I got peas. You want beets? I got beets. You want tomato and cucumber salad? I got that. Mm-hmm. Right. You want some strawberries for breakfast? I got that right here on the deck. Wow. When I see people in the supermarket, Cheryl, buying sage, <laughs> Right. A little, little pack. It's like this size, five dollars. Mm-hmm. I want to mm-hmm. slap it out of their hand. That's why you ain't got nothing. Yeah. Sage, yeah. sage, basil, parsley. These things grow like weeds. Wow. Wow. You, and they keep growing. That's the other thing. You just harvest and they just they keep, keep reproducing. Coming back. Yeah. Yeah. We wow. had one car while we were homeschooling our children. And they were always used cars because Charles can fix anything. Okay. One year he bought a car for $250. And even I was like, honey, really? And the kids were like, we're not riding around that. He was like, you want to walk? You want to walk? Right. So when, so when things like space camp, oceanography camp, engineering camp, and people were telling me as they're driving up in a car that they, and you got a $400 a month car note. Each of y'all, you got two, three cars, not to mention the insurance that you have to pay on that. Mm-hmm. And the upkeep. And upkeep. Mm-hmm. And you got, you got a standing appointment with the hairdresser, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Religiously. Mm-hmm. And your nail tech. So then there's no money left for the camps and all the enrichment. And you're going to movies in the middle of the ding-dong day. You don't even, you don't even wait for the matinee. You are you going to the movies at night. And buying popcorn. Wow. Like, I see. Yeah, how you, afford? Yeah. you can afford that. You can afford to go to Mickey D's, 
right. and buy five Happy Meals. Yeah. So I hear you saying, like, we have to think about not just in the academic part of it, but in, we talk about homeschooling being a lifestyle. Well, yeah. that's going to, that means it's going to trickle into how you work your money and how yeah. you plan and, and what yeah. you value you spend money on. But, right. and you, we really need to pay attention to where we're putting our money and, yeah. and really living our values more closely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so with, and also the how money and time. Yeah. So school went all year. Okay. Which was one of the reasons. Now, you know, we've met lots of happy homeschool families. I've met lots of children who love being homeschooled. Mm-hmm. Our children hated being homeschooled, Charles. <laughs> and we knew it because they told us, er day. Er day. We do not like this. We do not. We do not like this. How would you respond? You know, I, again, was not as enlightened as C. Madison. My standard response was, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of the 50. You know, I respond the way my parents should. Don't ask me again. <laughs> I want you to. Right. Ask me about this again. But Charles was, his standard line was, come let us reason together. Mm. Mm-hmm. so you know when they would say I remember the first time now as we used to call him baby Charles in every group there's one spokesperson so baby Charles was the spokesperson for his brothers he's the eldest twin by one minute um, and always took that very seriously and baby Charles would be the one to come to us and say we need to have a family discussion okay. dad's, dad's policies are draconian I said, I was thinking to myself, well, in fact, I said to him, you're 11. But for the fact that you're homeschooled, you wouldn't even know that word. (laughs) What are you talking about? Dad's policies are draconian. But Charles was always like, come, let us reason together. He said, let me, he'd let them go through their whole thing. Mm -hmm. And he would always conclude with, let me explain the beauty of a capitalist democracy to you. The beauty of a capitalist democracy lies in its simplicity. You don't own anything. You don't run anything. Okay. Your mother and I own the means of production. Ergo, we and we alone make all policies. When said policies become onerous or egregious, you should terminate your dependent status. And I was like, they're 11. How can they terminate their... He's like, they, they, need, to really, they need to really understand this. Because... The truth is the light walk in it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just like all these people who, you know, are like, I'm not getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Right. I trust my immune system. <laughs> and you can't make me, you know what we can do though. You can't work here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't own anything, mm-hmm. you don't run anything. That's true. See how that works. That's it. That's you don't it. own if you, or as my father used to say, you don't run anything here but your mouth. Okay? <laughs> you, you don't run anything because you don't own the means of production. Oh my goodness. And that's how you can see that people will, Charles just always say to the boys, look for the paradox. Mm. Look for the paradox. So all those people who were like, I trust my immune system. Mm-hmm. And then when they get sick, they go to the hospital. Mm. 
Mm. I thought you were trusting your immune system. Mm -hmm. People who I don't want, I don't want the government. I want people to pull themselves by the bootstraps. And then when something, when you have a catastrophe, you want, where's FEMA? Right. Where's the, right. I'm not going to wear a mask and you can't make me. It's a matter of principle. And then when we tell you, we're not going to pay you, then you're going to get a, you're going to get a vaccination. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 As opposed to say Muhammad Ali, who said, I won't, I won't, I won't fight in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of principle as evidenced by the fact that you can take this heavyweight belt and I will go to prison Mm -hmm. because that's what you do when you believe in your principles. Mm -hmm. Now, if he had said, well, if I have to go to jail, I guess I'll go. I guess I will go to Vietnam. Then it's not a question of principle. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this thing of challenging children to begin thinking about what's the paradox and who's responsible for what. And his position was, I hear that this is not what you like and you would not have selected this. But the fact of the matter is we are not peers. Yep. We're not. I'm interested in your thoughts and you are clearly intellectually gifted. Mm but I have more data points. I am the one who actually knows what it takes to survive as an adult black man. Mm. You do not. Mm. And the feedback from your 14 year old friends, all of y'all together don't. Right. This whole thing of the concern about being socialized. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I, you know, this isn't, she said, this isn't Lord of the Flies. I don't, <laughs> I don't. I don't want my children socialized by other 14 year olds because that's how people end up hurt. The socialization and the socialization piece is something that I think people are really confused about. Mm -hmm. You know, that in fact, socialization is happening whether children go to school or not. And it begins at conception socialization in my opinion begins at conception Mm -hmm. that interaction between the mother and the fetus and the people in your external environment Mm -hmm. you know this one when you go to the pediatrician don't they ask you about what was the pregnancy like yeah yeah Mm -hmm. because those interactions are affecting the child before they leave the womb Mm -hmm. and it continues throughout their and clearly the socialization that's happening, we don't need to be asking, does socialization happen? We need to be asking, is the socialization that's happening healthy? Right. Because you can go to any prison, any juvenile detention center, and the vast majority of people in there went to school and they were spanked like voting in Chicago early and often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're a pro- going back to that process piece, Mm-hmm. does the end result is this what you're looking for right. is this what you're looking for so mm. by our children having this exposure to those graduate students were kind of the in-between right so our children were children mm-hmm. we were adult adults and then they have these graduate students who were young adults who were sort of an in-between layer and that was extraordinarily beneficial extraordinarily so wow let me ask you um because we're getting a little long in our um, time but um let me transition to thinking about when you were writing morning by morning Mm -hmm. 
all those years ago, did you ever imagine Black homeschooling would become what it is today? No. And, and I want to ask you another question just to, to, with that, along with those ideas, what you were thinking at the time and who might be your readers. What would you say to the ones that are starting out today and they're a, a little bit hesitant, they're, they're, they're contemplating, they're not sure they can do it. That seems to be common right? Mm -hmm. We're not sure we can do it. We're not sure, you know, what would you say to those moms? I would say that being, being concerned shows good sense. Um, I would, because I don't buy into that whole idea that every homeschooling is the best thing for every family because it isn't. Mm -hmm. And I don't buy into the sort of arrogance that says it's your kid. So who's better to teach them than you? Because, you know, I have a piano, I can't play it. So the fact that you have something that's in your house doesn't mean that I'm not prepared to do the work. So if you're not prepared to do the work, it's not enough to just have the child. There are a lot of people who shouldn't be homeschooling, but in my opinion, there are a lot of people who shouldn't be parents. So there's that. Right, right. But if you are, if you are serious about this, mm -hmm. then you should know without a shadow of a doubt that you can do this and you can do it well. You can bring a spirit of excellence. You can make a space for excellence. You can make a time for your family to be fully present in the moment with one another. And it can, and homeschooling can be a blessing. Mm -hmm. It can be a blessing. Every blessing isn't easy. Right. And sometimes the things that we have to do for our children are high risk. One of the things that I talked about, because, again, I'm fourth generation apostolic Pentecostal. So, you know, there's scripture for everything. Right. Okay. right. Get in that word, people. Yeah. Get in that word. And one of the things that struck me was not just that scripture come out from among them and be a separate people. Right. But the idea of seeing yourself as. Who, he whom the son is set free is free indeed, right? Operating as though you know you have some autonomy over yourself and your own spawn. And then linking that to what we saw with in Exodus with Moses, that's then emphasized again in the New Testament in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And you now people start off with just that one verse from Hebrews chapter 11 about, you know, faith is the evidence and thing, that, that, that. But <laughs> the one that I really like is verse 23 when it says by faith Moses when he was born was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment oh. you know Moses was not the first child of his parents mm -hmm. he was their third child mm -hmm. and this issue of oppression had been escalating mm -hmm. And to the point that there's now an edict that says your male children have to be murdered. Mm -hmm. And when you look at those parallels, right, when you look at those parallels of ongoing oppression and how it has to escalate in its violence mm -hmm. so that when we see this sort of militarized policing, mm -hmm. right, when we see the school to prison pipeline mm -hmm. and we all see it, we talk about it. But Moses' parents knew about this edict. But unlike the other parents who were like, this is a terrible thing. They were like, you know what? I don't know if this is going to work. But I see this is a proper child and I am not afraid of the king's commandment. I'm going to take the chance of putting my child in this bull rush. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to take that chance. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take that chance. And I encourage Black parents, whether that chance is homeschooling, whether that chance is getting a tutor, whether that chance is space camp, whether that chance, whatever that chance is, but be attuned to what does this child need from me and tune out what, because other people, if it's a vision, other people can't see it. If everybody sees it and agrees with it, that's how you know it's not a vision. And every, I mean, that's how you know, oh, everybody sees this is not a vision. And a lot of times we keep looking for validation. Stop looking for validation. Mm-hmm. Validation should come through prayer and meditation. Mm-hmm. Let the Holy Ghost show you what is right for you, your marriage, your children. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because you can and expect, don't be discouraged when people are like, I need something. Are you sure? <laughs> this is that I, I wouldn't do that. Then you shouldn't. Right, right. <laughs> you shouldn't. But as I frequently said to people, would we even know about Nehemiah's work on the wall if we didn't have Sanballat and Tobias? Huh? That's true. They showed how important it was. They have, there always has to be somebody saying, "I wouldn't, you know, I, uh, uh, I wouldn't do that." That's don't true. then you should then absolutely don't. And you're always going to have that. I think even when I told my family, some of my family members um, and friends, that I was going to leave Connecticut come to Georgia to get a PhD. They thought that was the most dumbest thing in the world. Some people, why would you do that? You know? (laughs) Yes. And, and then he, um, but you look at how it turned out for me. I I mean, you have to follow your own path sometimes. And if homeschooling is beckoning you, um, then, then you have to, I get it. You have to trust that this is something you need to try to do. Yeah, because I think so often, again, people are quick to say, you know, we walk by faith, not by sight, but they're not walking. They're standing in the dark and they excuse that by saying, I'm just waiting for the leading of the Lord. (laughs) Yeah. You need to step out there. Yeah. Right. Like leaving Connecticut Mm -hmm. to go to Georgia. Mm -hmm. Right. Like when I quit my good job, <laughs> uh-huh. I was working for AT&T after law school. I was working on the divestiture project. I quit that good job with AT&T to start my own business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a side hustle. Wasn't selling t-shirts on Saturday. It's like, this is all. <laughs> right. and, not, and I love t-shirts. So don't get me wrong. I love, <laughs> I love t-shirts. But this is, this is, as Charles told our kids, this is how we we only eat what we hunt and kill. This is what we do full time. This is all we've done since 1986. Wow. This is what we do. Wow. This is, this is how I make my living. Mm-hmm. Yes, people thought that was crazy. But we don't listen to what other people think. And I think when it comes to homeschooling, what's hard is we love our children so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, and as I've said frequently, love is not enough, right? Yeah. Love is not enough. Yeah. You see the society that we live in, mm-hmm. right? And it's not enough to just be able to articulate those challenges, right? 
Because everybody can talk about systems of white supremacy and the school to prison pipeline. But if you really believe that it's a jungle out there, would you let your six-year-old be out there by themselves if this was a jungle? And there were, as my dad used to say, Satan is as a roaring lion walking to and fro fro seeking Mm -hmm. whom he can devour. He's not running. He's walking. Mm -hmm. Now that article that I think you posted in that Facebook group today about what happened in Oregon. Oh, that maybe that was um, Dr. Khadija, maybe. Okay. Okay. Now, if my child was at a school where their classmates had posted a slave auction and oh. listed my children, mm. we're done. Yeah. Okay. We're done. Yeah. Um, and it's not enough to, you know, and I can remember years and years ago, C. Madison would talk about how folks go into school board meetings. Mm-hmm. And I don't know um, there where you are, but in Columbus, school board meetings are televised. Mm. Um, and so just like in on those public access channels, school mm-hmm. board meetings and, and city council meetings are publicized. And it's not that people don't bring up good points. Right. So, for example, years ago, the big argument was about how um, standardized testings were so cultural. Standardized testing was culturally biased. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But if your child is in the fourth grade and they have to take and pass that test, is your time best spent identifying how culturally biased the test is <laughs> or preparing your child to blow that test out the water? Right. Right. So that argument about the quality and ethics of the testing, that's for people who either don't yet have kids or their kids are grown and out. But if your child is about to take that test, you need to be about the business of preparing your child for the thing Mm -hmm. that is in front of them, not articulating because we are so good at that. Yeah. There's also today there's um, ways to opt out of those standardized tests hmm. that parents don't even know about. But you, there is a opt out movement. You can um, yes. Google it and, and find out how to opt out of standardized testing. If enough parents opt out of it, mm-hmm. they won't have any choice but to get rid of it because it'll become more and more meaningless. Exactly. And so and less powerful because right now the test is too powerful. It is. It is yeah. too powerful. And if it's and if you haven't opted out, if the system has not been altered, while the I mean, one of the things that that Charles's uncle Sam mentioned once was, and Sam was the one I told you who got the PhD in Brown at Brown mm-hmm. in 1932. Mm-hmm. And while he was at Brown, he couldn't sit in the classroom. He had to sit in the hallway. Mm-hmm. And um, my kids were like, I would have left. Right? And he said, you know, I didn't come to sit in the classroom. I came to get the PhD. That's right. That's right. And while we work at dismantling systems of white supremacy, mm-hmm. we cannot engage. That's why we need beloved community. Mm-hmm. Some of us need to be researchers. Some of us need to be activists. Yeah. Some of us need to be farmers and gardeners. Mm-hmm. Some we, depending upon where you are in the cycle of your own life. Right. I wrote morning by morning after my youngest child had been admitted to college. Mm. To me, there was no point in me writing this book. It's like saying, this is a great cake and you just now putting the 
ingredients together. Mm -hmm. Let's wait and see if the right, right. how this actually tastes this is. Okay? <laughs> before we start talking about what a great baker you let. Oh, right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So what do yeah. you let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. You have many initiatives right now, and I think you have a new book coming out. I do. I have this will be my fifth book no my sixth book and that book is entitled god and greens the power of prayer and proper nutrition so it's a cookbook and um and it's linked to so charles sadly died in 2013 and when he died um our sons and nephews and our niece decided to build we wanted to do a garden in his memory. I didn't want the garden at our house. I wasn't sure how long I was going to stay in that house anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went to our church and asked if we could use a fallow field at the rear of the church. And because my children and my brother's children are fifth generation in this congregation. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so this is a church that was founded 110 years ago by descendants of formerly enslaved Africans. So this is an apostolic Pentecostal church. So as my kids would say, this is a blackity black, black church. You know, <laughs> you know I have on all, these, all this jewelry and makeup, so you can't tell. But yes, <laughs> I grew up in an apostolic, yeah, apostolic Pentecostal holiness okay. church. And so when we asked the pastor and the board, they agreed to let us use this space. So the garden started off, um, initially they gave us permission to, to use, it's like 3,000 square feet and the garden has grown to 5,000 square feet. And we now have um, a hoop house so we can grow year round. And um, it is, there's a farm bot inside. The, so I don't know if you're familiar with farm bots, but it's a, it's a robotic arm that fits on a raised bed and it can be programmed for what you're going to plant. So it knows the depth of the seed and it has a component that tests the soil moisture. And so it knows when to water and anything that erupts that is not that it was not programmed to plant, it identifies as a weed and tamps it down. Oh. And then it sends you a text message when it's time to harvest. And so when we do the summer day camp, uh, we do this free summer day camp, STEM to STEAM. It's all in the garden. Yeah. So when we do the summer day camp. The children get to learn about coding and robotics. Um, it's powered with solar energy. So we have solar uh, solar units there. And the solar units also power the hydroponic system that's also in the hoop house. Oh so that's kind of the high-tech part of the garden. But when the garden opened, so Charles died in 2013, we opened the garden in 2014. So it was an empty field. So Damon and Charles, my husband also knew how to do things. He was not just a thinker and a talker. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of my kids grew up using power tools. So, um, <laughs> so we built, I'm using the Royal We. Um, we built 40 raised beds initially, um, my sons and, and their cousins. And because my brother, I have one brother, I have two younger sisters and a brother. My sisters and I all went to the same prep school. We all went to Wellesley. Mm-hmm. Um, my older brother, who's like 15 months older than I am, went to Carnegie Mellon. And he's married to a woman who's been like my best friend since eighth grade. 
So our, we were in each other's weddings. Our children are stair steps. It was the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, our kids are very close and they were very close to, to my husband. So 40 raised beds. I bought the lumber. So I bought um, 700 feet of untreated lumber. They built these raised beds. We lined them with cardboard for organic weed control. We bought 40 tons of organic soil and wheelbarrowed it in. And then that first year we planted 3000 seeds and a hundred live plants. And so it was free grief therapy, right? It was free grief therapy. When it came time to harvest, we then thought, what are we going to, what are we going to do with all this food? And then doing the research, because that's what I do in my real life is demographic research. This neighborhood where the church is located is identified by USDA Economic Research Service as a low-income, low-access urban food desert. Now, we no longer use the term food desert because deserts are naturally occurring. We use the term um, urban food apartheid um, mm-hmm. and because this is intentional. And um, so we, the, the data shows that 35% of the households are at or below the poverty line. of the households don't have access to a car and the closest supermarkets are 4.3 miles away and it's Whole Food and Trader Joe's. Oh, wow. So, you know, there are little corner stores all over the place where you could get a 40 ounce, some hot Cheetos and a lotto ticket, but you couldn't get a green bean if your life depended upon it. Mm -hmm. So we decided to have an on-site farmer's market where we sell the produce for a dollar a pound. So when people come, if you, and, and we don't have storage. So when you come, we harvest it right then. So if you want a pound of sugar snap peas, we go harvest a pound of sugar snap peas. If you want a pound of mustard greens and collard greens, we go harvest that. And um, every once in a while, we'll get people like, can you just give me some peppers, my sister? And you're asking me that. That while you're standing there holding a pack of Newports. Now, I know when you went to the store, you bought them ports. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody gave you them ports. Don't ask me for a tomato. <laughs> right. Don't ask. Wow. Don't ask me for a tomato. Um, we have the farmer's market on Wednesday, right before Bible study. So that gives us a captive audience of people from church as well as the neighborhood. But yeah, people can just walk over and buy what they want. And then we really, that's a great way for kids to also learn entrepreneurship mm-hmm. because even though you couldn't run a full-fledged business with a dollar a pound business model, but the fact of the matter is for one packet of seed and we only buy um, open pollinated non-GMO seeds. So even if you're buying high quality seed, Let's say you splurged and spent $6 on a packet of seed. You could still grow two to 300 pounds of green beans from that one packet of seed because they just keep, you know, just like the okra. Mm -hmm. You you need to harvest okra every other day, right? And so you can make a lot of money, but we really make our money on the processed foods. So I have classes, but I also sell, I have classes on canning, pickling, and preserving. Okay. So, but I really make my money on the spicy garlic dills, um, the apricot and balsamic vinegar jam, the strawberry vanilla jam. Um, 
the cookies. I wouldn't pay $3 for a cookie. <laughs> I wouldn't pay $10 for a jar of pickles. Mm -hmm. I make tomato sauce. I would not pay $10 for a jar of tomato sauce, but we can't keep that stuff in stock. Wow. Now, at the beginning of every season, I give out free samples of the pickles because I use that drug dealer model. <laughs> you make your money on the comeback. Oh, you didn't? <laughs> yeah, you make your money on the comeback. Once you, <laughs> you make your money on the comeback, right. that's how you right. make your money. And yes, I can't. Around January, people will start asking me, baby, when, when the pickle's going to be ready? Mm -hmm. Seriously, I cannot keep the pickles in stock. Wow. wow. And every time I sell a jar, I think you're really going to give me $10 for a jar of pickles. And people will buy two or three. We have a limit. You're only allowed to buy three jars at a time. Wow. That's amazing. The pickles, the pickles are amazing. Yeah. But yeah, so we, but it's important to me to maintain that base of a dollar a pound. Mm -hmm. And then there's sometimes there are children in the neighborhood who come by and they may say, I, my grandmother's at home and she's sick. We don't have any food in the house. Mm -hmm. Here's a box of food. Okay. Mm -hmm. Here's a box of vegetables. Um, now, one time a little girl came back and said, um, I made a really great salad and, <laughs> and the lettuce I put the beef. So do you have any ranch dressing? I was like, no, it's, not, <laughs> it's a garden. We don't grow ranch dressing. Okay. <laughs> we don't. We don't, we don't grow, right, ranch dressing. Um, but we grow herbs. We, in the cooking classes, I try to show people how you can increase the flavor content of food without using salt. Yeah. Right? So we grow a lot of garlic. We grow a lot of shallots. We grow a lot of herbs. Um, and we talk about how herbs can be also medicinal. Like how, how you, you can. Are you online? Huh? Are you online with your classes yet? I've not done the classes online, but I'm planning to with the with the cookbook um, because I have all these recipes in the cookbook and some of the recipes are medicinal, right? So okay. like onion syrup and those kinds of recipes that I got from my mother who got them from her mother who got them from her mother. Mm. Um, so like a few years ago, we always have a garden conference at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. a free garden conference. And we usually have had, we've had some really great speakers. So um, one year we had um, Frederick Douglass Opie from Babson who had written a book on um, Thor Neil Hurston's recipes, okay. food is medicine. Okay. And it was so funny because when he got up to speak, he said, you know, we've lost so many of these home remedies. He said, for example, people don't know about onion syrup anymore. Mm -hmm. And my mother, who's now 91, we have so many elderly people at our church, Cheryl, that we don't announce birthdays unless you're 90. Oh, wow. Okay. People aren't just old. They're very healthy and vibrant. So my mother sitting there with her friends, she's like, oh, no, no. Uh, we, we all gave our children. Right. And he was like, you know about onion syrup? And the thing about living in a community that's insular like that, right? So my mother still teaches Sunday school. She started teaching Sunday school when she was 14. So yeah. she has a cluster group of women that are all in their 90s. They've all known each other since they were nine and 10 years old, oh my goodness. right? And I think that part of what we have not been tracking in terms of good health 
is the impact of beloved community, mm-hmm. right? Where you are seeing people two and three times a week. Mm-hmm. So when I was younger, I used to think it's Wednesday night, you're going to Bible study again. I mean, it's one book. Mm-hmm. I don't, <laughs> what do you not know? I mean, you've right. been reading the same book for a thousand <laughs> years, but um, that's true. That's true. What else is there to say? Yeah. Um, but this coming together, this studying together, um, this being in community together, I think also contributes to good health. Mm-hmm. And of course, these are older people who do know things about how you cook greens. Mm-hmm. So frequently people will come to the garden. They're like, I know that's a turnip. I don't know how to cook it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what to do with, I don't know what to do with this. So <laughs> Um, that the garden takes up a lot of time. We have this great partnership with Ohio State with the College of Engineering. So those students do, they're the ones who got the grant for the farm bot and the solar generators and power. So it's a whole, it's an interesting intersection. So when we have the free summer day camp, the counselors are students at Ohio State. Okay. And who I paid $15 an hour because I do not believe in unpaid internships. Right, right. I think unpaid internships are how we maintain class division. Mm-hmm. I think it's really unethical because what ends up happening, and I know I was fortunate, my parents paid for everything. Mm-hmm. Right. So Mom. I don't think I ever had a paying job until maybe my first year after college. Mm. That was my first paying job. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents sent me an allowance every month and things that I wanted to do, my parents paid for that, right? Mm-hmm. So when people talk about unearned privilege and they have this resistance to it, mm-hmm. I get it when white people are resistant to that, but I use myself as a negative example. My roommate first year, um, just incredibly brilliant sister. You may know her work, Dr. Renita Weems. So Renita is, Google her. Okay, okay. Okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I mean, but Renita really let me know, you you have unearned privilege. I think a lot of our conflict was, I kept looking at Renita and wondering, could I have done this on my own the way she did? Oh, right. And I do think that's one of the things that people struggle with with unearned privilege, Mm -hmm. right? So my path was laid out for me, Cheryl. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, the path was cut, paved, there were street lights, Mm -hmm. (laughs) there were no exits, okay? I would have had to go over the guardrail, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. My parents paid for violin lessons, tennis lessons, golf lessons, family vacations, private school, private college. My husband paid for law school. All of this was, that's, I didn't earn that. Mm-hmm. I had to do the work, but mm-hmm. somebody else made that happen for me, mm-hmm. right? And so I had lots of opportunities because someone was footing the bill. Mm-hmm. So when I asked college students to work at this summer day camp, some of these kids can't afford to, to do that without being paid. They have to make money over the summer. Right. So being able to pay people $15 an hour 
was wonderful because we then ended up with a hugely diverse group of students working with these children, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of these kids who were thinking, if you go to Ohio State, I guess you play football. I guess you play basketball. Right. But no, actually, here's a Black kid who goes to Ohio State and he's getting a PhD in engineering. Mm-hmm. And he's here to explain solar power to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about That's that? Good. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. I could talk to you forever. We will have to do something else soon. But um, Mm. I want to thank you for all the wisdom that you've given us today. And um, is there anything else, one, any final words you want to say? I just want to say thank you again for for having me on. This was, uh, this felt very, it was really fun but it also felt very validating. It's nice when you do the work and people come back and say, hey, I read that. It was good. <laughs> yes. And I would venture, I, we, I don't, you know, I keep, I'm not sure exactly how many members we have. I know mm-hmm. we have over 1,500. I think wow. we're getting closer to that 2,000. And I, I, I bet most people have read your work um, in some capacity, I'm sure. Well, I, I appreciate that, but I also yeah. appreciate like I said, you know, I said before we started recording, a lot of times people will contact me sort of offline, like help me with this help. And then, and I'll try to, and then later I'll say they're hosting a conference or a podcast. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, and you didn't want to ask me? <laughs> really? Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, seriously. And I'm thinking that's so weird because, and it's not like I expect that I'm on the tip of everyone's tongue. But when you were struggling and needed information, you contacted That's me. That's right. That's right. So if you are now hosting something and now and monetizing it, yeah, yeah. And now you didn't think to ask me. That's yeah, right. I don't like mine like that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> so I, I appreciate I appreciate you um, including me in this process. I I appreciate you. Um, yeah, making a space for, for an old lady. I appreciate that. <laughs>